Welcome to the Movement Podcast. This show is all about movement. We tackle it from different angles, bring on guests, answer questions, go on a few tangents, and give practical advice, giving you guys a better idea of how you can optimize the human body to be the best it can be. Let me give you a preview of what's coming up. Today, we have a very special episode of the Movement Podcast. We celebrate Father's Day with Gray and Lee's dads, Mr. Linwood Cook and Mr. Sammy Burton. The dads tell stories about Gray and Lee growing up in the small town of Chatham, Virginia. The conversation includes motorcycles, body cast, sciatica, the 1970s equivalent of an iPhone, raising pigs, work ethic, resourcefulness, and how being brought up in a small town community and church has influenced their business approach. The second half gets deeper, discussing physical transformation. One dad shares his own personal movement journey after tragedy struck. They talk about today's youth and their need for activity, China's emphasis on movement, and physical strength comparisons on the World War II era versus today. They wrap it all up with a new nickname for Lee, his baseball journey, power naps, and an old school Gatorade recipe. So let's get going with today's movement podcast, powered by FMS. All right, Gray, real excited today. We got our dads here for a little segment to uh, probably uncover a lot of stuff that we wished was not uncovered to our audience and a lot of people that maybe listen. So, uh, but no, it's, it's good because uh, a lot of people may or may not know, Gray, we've been, we've known each other, you know me pretty much all my life. Yeah. Um, and your dad, certainly known him most of my life. You guys came back, it uh, sounds like when I was three years old. And, 1975, uh, we moved to Dry Fork, Virginia and uh, met a culture and a community we had not witnessed from Virginia Beach. <laughs> it was it was like moving back in time, but probably in the best of ways. So, yep. And uh, Mr. Cook, you're you were my preacher. Small church in uh, Dry Fork, and my dad has been in the car business since uh, my family's car business since 1945. So there'll be quite a few stories that come up. Um, but Mr. Cook, let me ask you this. Give me a good story about Gray growing up that uh, you realized that eh, maybe this guy's going to be a little handful. We moved to Dry Fork when he was nine. Uh, I was appointed to my first church as a pastor, Hopewell Methodist. I think Sammy may have been my lay leader in that point in time. I'm not sure, but you were a lay leader several times in that nine years that I was the pastor there. Gray, uh, his grandfather kept giving him motorbikes. And each motorbike had a, an accident associated with it that we go back and think about and didn't laugh about then, but laugh about now. But uh, uh, Gray and Beth, his sister, and uh, two other teenagers, the Maxis, um, raised 300 pigs a year for seven years to help pay their way through college. So they had a motorbike trail through the woods to go to the farm where they went at five in the morning to do what you do for an industry like that. And so it was always some event in the day, either involving Beth or the Maxi kids that uh, required some attention, whether it was correction or an apology or a repair or a bandage, it required something. But it was they were good years. They, we look back fondly. Uh, on our time at uh, Hopewell Church, those nine years. No, that, that, yeah, those that, for me definitely the formative years. Um, 
growing up in a, in a small church. Definitely fortunate. Um, and again, you know, Gray and I not interacting because of the difference in our ages at that point and then circling back. Now, looking back, it's definitely uh, an interesting time compared to where things are today. You know, letting four kids get out on motorbikes and be gone for hours certainly doesn't happen today. Well, the, the times have changed. We started off uh, reminiscing before we even started recording about the very first time I actually put you and your family together. You had just broken your femur. My dad did a visit to your house, and because you were in a body cast at that age for a, a fractured femur, you were in a hospital bed in the front room. But as you started telling us, that wasn't going to interfere with vacation. Now, any little problem with a kid can completely alter a, a parent's summer or year, but uh, we had some Disney tickets, and <laughs> you're going whether you're fractured or not. Yeah, I think... Uh Dad, I think that's where you, you kind of maybe said, this uh, fracture, we're still going to take that 12-hour road trip to, to Disney World. <laughs> well, we, you delayed it a couple of weeks, but that's about it. Yeah. We, but we were, we were prepared to go within two days of this break, and you were in the body cast. It was a little longer than two weeks, but as soon as the doctor gave us permission, we did go. And the very first day that we stopped at restroom, Lee goes in the bathroom and falls. We wind up in the hospital that night. <laughs> So let me get and this And the straight. good part of it, though, was when we got to Disney World, because here this skinny kid has lost a lot of weight pushing this poor little kid around in a wheelchair. We got first in line and everything. <laughs> so I, I want to I paint the picture. If, and again, I, I remember this to a degree. But So I break my leg. I'm in a body cast. So the doctor gets me out of the body cast probably quicker than he should have. I go to the bathroom, evidently, by myself on crutches and fall. But not going to disrupt the trip so everybody can get in the front of the line. Got to take care of everybody. <laughs> it's a democracy here. Yeah. Yeah. They're not going to show favoritism just because you, I mean, what you were told by other people too, just if you get hurt, you, I've heard you tell your son, rub some dirt on it and go on. Yeah. Well, now, it's, now that I'm educated, I say not dirt, it's ice. No. Just put a little ice on it and you'll be fine. I used to use that as an icebreaker when we had a tough crowd teaching FMSs in the early days. I would talk about the first time I met Lee, and, and believe it or not, with that body cast situation, which is almost like going from the, the bottom of his chest down to both knees and That's keeping right. everything lined up. But the resourcefulness, I think, you or Dr. Ogden applied to the situation is one of the sides of that body cast had a nice little suitcase handle on it. Well, and so I would tell that story, but everybody's imagining, you know, this little toe-headed kid with a suitcase handle well, looking he, like a kettlebell. He, was, he really was, got skinny, but what you don't quite remember correctly— it was a bar between his legs we could grab up and hang <laughs> okay. stuff or drag him around. And we did put him in a wagon from time to time and tie the dog to it and drag him around the yard. But oh, uh, it was not a, and we weren't we weren't well off. So it wasn't a hospital bill, but it was a lounge chair with a big hole cut in it. So, <laughs> so the, yeah, and I I do remember that. So there was a hole cut out just so I could go to the bathroom. And they had one of those old lounge chairs where you sunbathe on that that folded up and a hole cut in the bottom of the lounge that chair. Was so I could, and then I had a bell. And every time I had to go to the bathroom, I'd ring that bell, ding, 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 ding. And I'd have either either somebody would slide something under the chair or somebody <laughs> would give me something to pee in. So that was How uh, long were you in the cast? I was in the twelve weeks. Well. And it wasn't me. I didn't do any of that. That was your mother, so you can thank her for that. Yeah. Well, uh, Y'all raised him right because uh, a loss of dignity since then has never slowed him down. I've traveled with him professionally, and a little a little jab to the dignity doesn't slow him down a bit. He's pretty tough. So. Yep, yep. Let me let me keep the ball rolling. 
But I do think that, you know, that during that time and engaging with at that time as, as orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Ogden, um, and then kind of going through that recovery was probably what sparked my interest in in the medical field, um, to be honest. And, yeah, yeah. and I remember you talking about it for a long time after that. Yeah. Yeah. Just just had to how to get somebody back to do what they need to do, because back then, even then, I remember the doctor saying, you know, they, the big debate was whether they go to therapy, whether they're not go to physical therapy. Um, and he didn't recommend it. He said, you know, you're, you're 10 years old, you'll bounce back. Don't worry about it. Um, but just, I think that interest got me thinking about it. No, and, and I never had one day of physical therapy in my life. Uh, I, I had, I had been injured a lot as a kid, but if you look at the difference in my age to your age, and then my brother, you almost had a choice in physical therapy. My brother had a fracture. He was automatically sent to physical therapy. It wasn't even an option with every one of my breaks and sprains. It's just like when the cast comes off, start doing everything you were doing right before we put the cast on, and, and you should be able to work it out. And, and so it was really neat that I didn't even realize there was this whole rehabilitation thing you're supposed to do after an injury. It was, you know, rub some dirt on it and keep going. You know, you mentioned Bill Ogden. I remember I... I ministered to Bill and Joan after their son was killed, and we became close friends. In fact, he preached once at Hopewell Church. We called it Doctor's Day, and Woody Thigpen sang the solo. Dr. Wright, a veterinarian, did the children's sermon, and Bill Ogden preached. So we became very close friends, and I would see them personally at time to time. And he either heard from me or maybe even from Gray that he had some interest in sports medicine or physical therapy. And he asked Gray to come to his office for a day, I think, and just spend a day with him. And I think that was an exposure that was a blessing in the long run because he had a chance to talk with someone who had great ability to communicate as well as uh, his love for healing and recovery and so forth. So, All right, and here's a story that spins out of that. Dad was having pretty bad sciatica uh, maybe three years into, no, 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 maybe five years into Our Hope Will Stay. And I went over to Bill's office because I already had a relationship with him because of a couple of fractures and then that, that day in the office. And he was doing his history, and I was in the room. And before he got his reflexes out and everything like that, he said, Lynn, which leg is it? And you pointed to the right. And he said, where do you keep your billfold? And you said, on my right. And he said, let me see it. And you pulled out <laughs> something as big as a softball we played with on Sunday afternoon. And he goes... Cut it in half and put one in each pocket or at least switch sides every now and then. And that was your sciatica. <laughs> I mean, so it was the fact that he was a brilliant and skilled surgeon, but he never stopped that holistic or completeness of it. I mean, uh, lean in, and you and I are finding this out in the research today. We look at movement, and what do we see first? Lifestyle. We can tell what kind of lifestyle you got by the way you move, and it's a much clearer representation than what you tell us sometimes. Now, I'm assuming as a preacher in a small church, that billfold that was that thick didn't have money in it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you all paid me 7000 a year my first year, and that was three kids, run a household, and I had gone back to Averett to get because my background was marketing and management before ministry. So I had to go back to Averett and Duke Seminary, and my first year's salary was $7,000. So the question you, is, Sammy. if you weren't rich, what was in the bill for? <laughs> but it took you much longer back then to go to Duke and finish than to do now. Oh, yeah. Because you were part-time. Well, I went, I went the summer semester, right. sem seminary right. program, which was nine summers. So I, th I think back then, Greg, you're getting ready to ask a question, what's, what's in the bill for? And I think back then... 
you know, I remember even, you know, my dad having a big, thick billfold. The billfold, really, this day would be the iPhone. Yeah. <laughs> you keep everything that's in right. it. That's right. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's where all your notes and everything else you needed was in your was in your billfold. It was, uh, there were nine great years. And I look back, and I don't know whether Greg could answer this question or not, but. He'll try, even <clears> if he can. Right. We, um, when you raise 300 pigs a year, excuse me, <clears throat> at least half of them would be males that need to be castrated. And at nine years old, he started surgically with a razor blade and iodine castrating all the males. And he did it for seven years. And I think we only lost one pig, and we didn't lose it in any problem. We just didn't sell it, and we made sausage out of it. Mm -hmm. But uh, he was doing that at nine years old and for the seven years. So, Oh, that's a, that's, that's a nugget I'm going to probably bring back up quite a bit. <laughs> Gray used to castrate pigs. <laughs> I mean, really, and, and they it paid their way through Pfeiffer, just about. I mean, and paid Hank and Heidi's way through Virginia Tech. So, uh, well, Gray and I talk about that a lot. I think one thing that has allowed us to be, you know, work together as long as we work together, and 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 be and get out the way we get out. It's not so much part of it is obviously the message that we have, but I think it's the work ethic we had growing up. You know, we both grew up working on a farm and getting up at. 5.30, a.m. and working 12 hours a day, you get a 10-year-old, 12-year-old kid today to do that, it's not very common. So that was just kind of ingrained in what we, in us. That's that's a thing that I see much different today than y'all came along. Because you did learn not only a work ethic, you learned to respect things that didn't belong to you, belonged to other folks. You were, you respected each other. You learned to respect, respect people. But back then, you're right, uh, in our community, kids had responsibilities and they took uh, accountability for the responsibilities and, and parents held them accountable. That's much different than today's time. But yeah, that's, uh, I tell people that all the time, especially about my son when we're talking about my children, that they did work and labored and, and had responsibility and that's the reason they're successful today. We've, we've been to very prestigious academic places, military bases and pro sports teams. And one thing that has come up more often than not is the four o'clock or five o'clock hour will roll around. And if Lee and I still got work to do, we keep working, we keep answering questions, we keep doing things. And we often have people come up to us and say, you know, you guys way over delivered and it's the job's done when the job's done, but they seem surprised by the fact that we're not looking at our watch. And when he and I pack up our bags and go on the road, that's way more than an eight hour day. And, and we never saw it as anything less. We don't see it as a, as a vacation or anything like that. But a lot of people are surprised that we come to deliver a message and it's done when it's done. And, and, but they come to us and they say it in a complimentary way. And I, I would feel bad if I didn't do that. That's a key thing you you said. You do you do what's necessary to do the job, and you finish when the job's done. And same thing with room with Linwood and I tell pastors now. You you preach till you finish. <laughs> Don't be watching the clock, and you know you you finish your job if it, God's laid something on you, and then you finish. Y'all have a job to do. You finish. You didn't tell that me job. that in '75. You I were know. like this. You were looking at your watch. <laughs> I was one of the many, but I didn't. He had yeah. some different stressors in his life at that, that time. Age. Listen, at noon, I started getting hungry. He had three wiggly kids on a row. <laughs> so y'all had this to bring back memories of y'all, but it brings back memories for us, too. Uh, we were sitting here and talking about it, and I know I have sat here, and I'm sure you, too, remember things that we wouldn't have thought about without sitting around having this conversation. 
Well, the one that came to me this morning, and I think is very relevant to you guys being guests with us, is culture and, and community and resourcefulness. Uh, that was dry for it. But when that little church was able to do a fundraiser, exceed their goal, and put a group of guys on a motorhome. It was my grandfather's motorhome, and, and Sammy, you and you and Boom, my grandfather, were the designated drivers. You had an automotive history. You had a lot of traveling under your belt, and you knew how to get this group of guys to Mexico. Some of the guys on that motorhome had never left the zip code for much of anything <laughs> other than World War II. And yet <clears throat> the fact that a lot of other churches in the area had the exact same resources, but Hopewell Church decided to be a presence in the world, not just on their corner. And I thought this morning what, a, what an influence that was on me to realize that something was going on there that made a difference quarter way around the world. And I feel that about, about some of the stuff we've done sometimes, but you, you were working with the exact same tools 10 other churches within 20 miles were working with. And they they didn't do that, and y'all did, and it had a lot more to do with resourcefulness than resources. You guys stretched $15,000 a long, long way and changed a lot of things with it, and that's probably the thing that sort of welded this together. It's that resourcefulness. Well, it's vision and having a, having a willingness to try stuff, and it's got to have – you got to have leadership and believe that that's something God wants you to do. But I see the same thing in y'all's business. When I talk to people and try to explain what you do, I can't really explain what you folks do. But to tell them in a little town of Chatham you have an office and what you have accomplished and where you reach, people in this community don't understand that. And uh, I, I've said many times, Sometimes we live here in this little community. We don't have the vision that somebody comes in and can take something to do with it. You two have were raised here and have taken your vision and exploded around the world where most people in this community uh, would never think to do. The old saying, find the need uh, and fill it. Uh, we saw migrant workers up and down the road on Sunday with nothing to do, and Hopewell started a Sunday afternoon migrant ministry and uh, found the people to speak in Spanish and saw there was a great spiritual need for the migrant workers who were here in April and staying until September while their children were being born back in Mexico. It was stress, where parents were dying, stress. And so the ministry of the church was there to help meet that need. That exposure first of opening the church to a ministry uh, helped us see a need with a missionary that we knew. Were you on the first trip, Sam? Yeah. Uh, we went one, and Gray, you were on the second trip. Mm -hmm. Right. So we made two trips down there to build churches and clinics. But I think it was the local exposure to a need that made Hopewell vision that they could be an influence and help this missionary. And you remember Bob Connolly was down there as a missionary uh, taking doctors to the mountains to do clinics and being an interpreter, and for 16 years, talking anatomy and medicine, he became quite good, and at 54, he came back to Duke and got a medical degree and went back to Mexico, and we followed him and built his first clinic and church. And so it, it all just was a, a, a puzzle coming together that made the church see, hey, we can do this. And we divided the, the clinic cost 
uh, that first clinic over the Sunday school classes in, in, in physical ways, like the nursery had 10 cinder blocks or the men's Bible class may have had the roof, but we divided, gave it a, a visual and uh, we raised not the $5,000 that we needed back in those days in 77, but we raised 15500 because other people in the community whose churches weren't doing anything were saying, we want to help that. So it, it was a sharing of a vision. No, and I, th- I think what's, what's so interesting now to me personally is looking back and knowing how much, of course, not at the time and even day to day, you don't think about it, but how much that has influenced myself, all of that. To, to my business, how I try to raise my kids, knowing that at some point my kids are going to hopefully look back and say, you know, they're 10 and you know, 12 and 14 right now, how much what's happening now could influence them long term. So it's just reflecting back, knowing and seeing that and talking about it here today is definitely uh, pretty powerful. There's, there's a lot in, in business, especially in businesses that grow and get big and popular where, um, <clears throat> It could be dangerous to be transparent. It could be sometimes unpopular to have integrity. And giving yourself permission to do that anyway uh, seems to resonate to the people that you want to do business with in the first place. All right, let's take a break. And when we come back, more stories and insight from Gray, Lee, Linwood, and Sammy. FMS One is designed for fitness, healthcare, and performance professionals who are looking to evaluate and understand how well their clients, patients, and athletes move. This is a highly interactive certification course that equips you with the tool industry leaders use to guide their programming decisions. During this course, you will learn how the seven fundamental patterns of the movement screen relate to and affect many of our daily activities and how mobility, motor control, and functional pattern concepts play a role in the screening process. You'll be able to identify correct screening techniques and common mistakes so your screen results are consistent and reliable. The FMS1 learning environment consists of a movement lab, performing the screen with your peers and engaging in screening demonstrations with your instructors. Are you ready to have a reliable tool that sets a movement baseline and provides a tight feedback loop to guide your programming decisions? Take a look at our upcoming courses and get started today. One of the topics that has always inspired me, whether it's as a, as a strength coach or as a rehab guy over in physical therapy, I think it's the same thing for Lee, is physical transformation, all right? The, the fact that without surgery, without some type of other alteration, we can literally change some habits, change uh, the way we train, change the way we work and completely physically transform our body. Now, you can see that at the top end in Olympic athletes, and you can see it in the low end when basically maybe a a loved one learns to walk again after a stroke. Do you guys have a story or something that affected you when you saw the human's unbelievable capacity to physically transform or change just out of a, a little bit of will and a little bit smarter plan, whether it's somebody became great or somebody got some independence back? You got a story that affected you that way because that's sort of what our metrics do. We try to tell that story at a level that allows people to make the right decisions to keep that transformation going before you give up and say, I'm handicapped forever or I can never be X. Well, it would ought to have, I mean, to me, the story that I think about when you're saying that is the accident that you and the Maxes were in. And I'm sure a lot of folks right here didn't suspect some of you folks to survive. Yeah, that was um, seven years ago now that 
uh, our good friend Max, as we mentioned those, we were on a 50th wedding anniversary to Montana when we were hit head on by a drunk driver at 70 miles an hour. And it, if it hadn't been for a helicopter to fly my wife to Brenda to the trauma center at um, the hospital in Billings, um, she would have died. And hers were internal injuries. Mine were orthopedic physical injuries when my hip was completely shattered. And, um, and I didn't know I'd walk again. But I saw what Gray did every day in their PT department and the things they did for me to get me going again. And I was in a wheelchair for three months and three weeks, and I was on crutches for three more months. But, I mean, every day today now, I, I, I'm physically able to do what I want to do because I think skilled hands and skilled minds, and Gray was a part of my rehab here when I got back, uh, but got me going again. In fact, I, I tell my doctors my treadmill today is the farm and because our farm is very hilly. And you have to walk most of the time. And uh, uh, that's, I think, the joy of living again, to do what you want to do. But it took PT and the minds that understood anatomy and movement. And uh, you can function with steel plates holding your pelvis together. You can function with two nine millimeter bolts holding your pelvis to your backbone. And and do it without a lot of problem. And so I'm blessed. I'm here today. My wife is here today. The Maxis are here today. Uh, and uh, Linda went through a great deal of PT because she had a broken back. Um, so I think, you know, that's, that's come full circle for us. We see what hands do. Well, one, one question I've got for, for both of you, um, and I'm going to ask both of you to answer this question from your, from your own perspectives you know, um, my dad uh, has been on the school board for, what, 25 years in this local area? Um, and been the chairman of the school board for a number of those years. Um, same question to both of you from your perspectives. One thing that Gray and I have been, really been passionate about from, from the start, and we started this business working with younger athletes, and, and we want to continue to tr really try to focus, in, in, especially today during this time with, with – kids being obese and type 2 diabetes having being a problem, kids not being as active as they should be, all the reasons why the, the problems. But what have, you know, my dad first, what have you seen in, from your perspective being on the school board, looking at kids and seeing that environment, overall environment, what has occurred over those 25-plus years from your perspective that's gotten to this point? Because What's happening is kids are, are not being as active or they're focused on one thing. They're not doing what they need to do. What that does, it creates a, a behaviors and a lifestyle that then turns into a 40-year-old that's already in a poor position. Not only health-wise, it's, it's, that's the reason we have some discipline problems today, too. We talked about earlier again that when y'all were young, the only thing you had to do was play. And most time it was some kind of sport you played. There's so many distractions this day and time. And I've felt for a long time that every generation wants things better for their children coming along. And unfortunately, some of us make it easier instead of better. You're not, you don't worry about accountability and things like that. Youth sports are, is just another form of activity, whether it's sports or whether it's band or whether it's uh, 
any other type of school or after school activity that's carried on in the community keeps and keeps students keeps young people busy and active and that's what you need to do y'all say it all the time just move and that's one of the things at my age i don't move nearly as well as i should because the, the times i was too busy they don't need to be too busy you need to keep that activity up all the time but if you stay in any kind of organized groups of sports or other activities it also it builds character it helps with discipline it helps with getting along with each other. The things the world's going through now, the country's going through now, is because we can't talk to each other. With all these uh, devices, your telephones and your mobile devices that work great for business and activities, there's a, there's a big need out there for folks that uh, want to get a job, but they can't interview. They can't talk to people. That's the last thing that's, that, that I, really worries me and concerns me is getting away from athletics. But all of that and your moving and your activity uh, keeps your, not only your body, but your mind clear, too. I, I have a story. And uh, Gray invited me to go with him to California several years ago and to Titleist Institute to see Dr. Greg Rose and then go down to the Navy SEAL base at Coronado. And we were at Titleist and we were talking and I got the grand tour and I enjoyed meeting Dr. Rose and his family. But as we were ready to leave, uh, Dr. Rose said, Gray, I just got back from Canada. I need to tell you something. He said, I got back from China, excuse me, correction. I just got back from China. And I want to tell you that the head of the uh, Chinese Olympic Committee said to me, Dr. Rose, would you like to see a spreadsheet on one of our Olympic athletes? Some are a winner. I'm not sure what it was. But they called it up on the screen of a computer. And the very first line on the screen was the FMS score for that athlete. You all's functional movement screen score was the top line on that athlete. And then he said, that's not the end of the story, Gray. The president of China has the functional movement screen performed on him once a month as if he were a Navy SEAL. China as a nation was conscious of movement, health, physical activity, that they knew exactly where our child was. When I watch TV and watch China on the news, I don't see obese children. And then Gray turned to Dr. Rose and said, isn't that interesting? All of China has embraced the functional movement screen and Chatham High School two miles away won't embrace it. I mean, and, and I think, you know, both what both you guys are alluding to is it's it is just that behavior that, un, you know, not even thinking that that's something that you need to be be doing. Um you know, that communication, that accountability, all that is, you know, that's one thing that Gray and I fought for years, even looking at the functional movement screen you're talking about, it has a score. And that score that we've kind of debated even internally, whether you need to have a score or not a score, whatever the score is, but that's a certain level of accountability when you get to, especially kids and youth, is they know that, okay, I need to be at a certain level. And right now, you know, that's just not something that even thinking about. That was that was the thing that you know had had the movement screen been more of a product like a a force plate or a camera system or a robotic 
thing that measured you, I think we would have got popular a lot quicker because people are so used to your phone telling you how to get from point A to point B or a doctor giving you advice that you're, you're, I mean, doctors are dispensing advice today that grandmothers and great grandmothers used to dispense, which is lifestyle information. Let's get off of these drugs. Let's, let's act like adults with your eating and your activity. And when, when I look at what we've tried to do with the movement screen, one of the things is I think everybody assumes they can still move pretty good. And so the scale that we tried to create and the accessibility we tried to create looks almost too obvious and too simple until you start doing it on the best athletes in the world. And we show up at the NFL Combine, and there are no more impressive movements than we see at, at, at most high schools. And which tells us that we're still going to have good performers and bad performers. But the thing that hit me like a ton of bricks, and I think the stat is pretty close to correct, is uh, you guys know very fondly some people who fought in World War II. Six pull-ups was the minimum for you to do anything physical in the military at that time. I think the minimum for Army Rangers right now is five. So what used to be the bottom of physical expression of upper body strength is now considered to be almost a, an elite measure now. And so that's what happens when we, don't, when we don't do things as well as a previous generation. The minute we decide to lower the bar to feel comfortable is the minute we quit learning from maybe a greater generation or a generation that had it figured out or was just more resourceful because they didn't have as much free time to sit around instead of do something else. Well, when y'all were younger and we were younger, we did everything ourselves. We didn't have, we didn't pick up the phone every time we needed anything, little things, little job done around the house. And I'm as guilty as anybody to the point now that uh, I don't see as well, don't move as well. But we're all dependent so much on other folks instead of more self-dependent. And we don't think for ourselves. We depend on other people to tell us. Uh, it's not as much common sense out there. And, and y'all, when y'all grew up, you had to use a lot of that. Now, I think back sitting around told you a while ago, we think about things we didn't think about in a long time. And I know that Lynn was referred to you that you might have been a handful when you were young. Lee was kind of a sleeper. <laughs> he just, he I'm just, not sure I like that term. <laughs> Lee would leave. Make age, sure we keep that clear. Age. Not a sleep. If you had sleeper. a real fast car and you didn't have it all shined up, didn't have everything, you call it a sleeper where you could had a big motor in it, but nothing else showed. Uh, Lee was kind of a sleeper until he was about high school. He didn't see anything. He didn't get involved in anything. He didn't know anything. He knew it all, but he hid it. He was that middle kid. Yeah. Middle kids know how to lay low, right? Yeah. No, <laughs> I, I Let the oldest one be the tip of the spear. <laughs> I did not want to draw any attention. Watch what the youngest one gets away with. <laughs> let me just sit back and let everybody else get in trouble. I tell the story. He says it's not true, but in, in elementary school. I didn't were, say it wasn't true. I just, once again, was I don't a, remember. It was a fight in the restroom. There was three kids in there. The two fighting and Lee. <laughs> so the principal calls them all in. Lee, what happened? Where? What? What are you talking about? What fight? <laughs> so until he got into high school, that was Lee. He loved sports. He was good at it, and he worked hard at it. But he didn't say any much. And then he kind of, 
I don't want to say blossomed because it just kind of spilled out as he became <laughs> spilled out. <laughs> junior and senior, and I think I got a fun. car. I think I think I got a car. Maybe that Camaro kind of, helped you express yourself. The, the Camaro yourself. helped me out a little bit. <laughs> and did, it just grew from that. Lee, did you play baseball? I remember. Did you play basketball too, or just baseball? I played baseball as my primary sport. Okay, I played. What, I played all three sports until I realized I was I was really only good at one. <laughs> okay, I remember baseball. Yeah, I played baseball, a little bit of basketball and football, but once I got to high school, I just went with the baseball route. But unlike today, I mean, when, when baseball was, you know, I played baseball through the summer, and then once that was over, I was usually playing basketball or football or whatever it was just around the house and with the local kids, didn't really, never really train for it, to be honest. Um, but that's certainly not what happens today. It's, it's well, he, did, he worked, he, I'll always remember, he worked on his, by himself in the basement. He, his mother would had these comforters. He would hang them in the basement. He'd work on his head and all winter. He'd wear those out. So um, he did work. He did, but he worked on his own. He wasn't organized. You have a pitching machine in your basement? No, he just had put them on a tee and he'd practice his swing. Oh, oh okay. With tennis balls into that <laughs> material until he wore two or three of them out every winter. But okay. he, and he didn't tell it. But he Lee was always smarter than his father and his mother. <laughs> He had I'm, a I'm glad of, we're recording this. Yeah, but I like. I, can you know, say Lee was also smarter than his sister and his brother? <laughs> you take that burden on. <laughs> but I'll tell him that you said that. But he had a chance to go to a college and play off scholarship, play baseball. Turned it down, and uh, we were riding in a car coming back from a summer league game, and he couldn't decide where he wanted to go to school. He had a chance to go to a couple different places. And one was to Bridgewater from baseball scholarship, and the other one was at Appalachian State, take up some sports medicine. Now, this is uh, his senior year, and, and I, we'd ride in the room, and I said, Lee, you decide right now. You can put this off on it. What do you want to do? And he looked at me. He said, Dad, I said, I, said, I can go to Appalachian State, be a trainer, and be around the athletics the rest of my life. If I go to, to Bridgewater and play baseball, I'll play small college baseball. And that's how he made up his mind to – follow the field he wanted to so he knew what he wanted to do he just didn't want to say it in front of folks but he decided on that trip i just still sit in my mind and that's how we wind up where we are today mm -hmm. so you went so you went to boone i went to boone and um <clears throat> excuse me what i don't know if he even knows this i'm, I'm telling i'm gonna tell something on it, me won't right now. it won't be the first time i've learned something so went a lot to of boone. things happened at appalachian yeah. state so. i went to appalachian <laughs> state really gonna focus more on uh my academics um, but I wanted to give baseball a shot. I still like playing baseball. So I went to practice. I was going to walk on. Went to practice. Um, first practice was fine. Is like and back then, there was really the NCAA hadn't cracked down. So we would do, you know, three or four hour practice in the morning, take a two hour break, three or four practice hour practice in the afternoon on the weekends, and then three or four hour practice every day. Um, it took about one Saturday to realize um, after a Saturday night that I did not want to go play on Sunday. So my extracurricular activities got in, in the way of my extracurricular activity. So that's really what deterred my baseball uh, playing. And I knew I couldn't do both. I knew I couldn't. I knew I could not focus on academics and do the baseball thing. But uh, the story that I received at the time, the reason you gave up baseball, that there was a kid there they'd offered a scholarship that couldn't make your high school team. <laughs> but now I find out it's because the Saturday night party, you couldn't make a baseball Yeah, the, the Saturday night party made it a little hard for me to get up and practice on Sundays. Okay. <laughs> 
But he did. <laughs> Nothing's he, ever caused by one thing. <laughs> when he said he had, he was focused on academics. And I don't. I'll get the number of hours. He needed twelve hundred hours in the training room to graduate. He got in a year early in the program, and he had twenty some hundred hours when he graduated. So he did focus on academics during academic time. Really, the religious concept that I see here is that your confession was good for the soul. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> It's all out now. Yep, yep. No, it's not all out now. <laughs> right. not, not quite. <laughs> oh, no, that, that's good for today. That's, that's well, a, do, yep. you, do you remember when he got he got engaged and had his engagement party in town? Uh-oh. I'm trying to... I'm sure you were not invited. <laughs> Probably not. Yeah, yeah. That was Sally's side Sally, of the family. Sally's, Sally's always did. trying to yeah, keep we had me to out of y'all social yeah, events. That, 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 the engagement party required a tie and a coat, not a yeah. sleeveless shirt. <laughs> Sally's, anyway, invited his friends he's lived with in Norfolk who were naval officers and would go up and down the Columbian River was part of that duty. Well, Dana still has nightmares of the stuff she learned that night. She still wish she'd never learned of the antics that he and Kevin Easley learned from these older Navy SEALs and Navy <laughs> while they were living together in Norfolk. But she still wakes up sometime with shivers of the stuff that they talked about. So I know there's plenty of other stories to come out yet we've never heard. The sleeper knows how to survive. Yeah. <laughs> You've never been called a sleeper before. No. <laughs> I, I've thought that many times. I'm like, you know. <laughs> I'm glad one of us is conserving not, right now. <laughs> not asleep. Let's just make sure that's clear. Sleeper, not asleep. Many a West Coast flight coming back. I've, I've looked at Lee just enjoying slumber and realized I can't sleep on a plane, and so I had to wake him up so he could watch a movie with me. He has he a friend from there that he could drop off sleep anytime. I mean, you just wake up. So maybe that's one thing you learn from That's him. what I learned from it's my grandfather. It's not a clear conscience. It's simply detachment. That's what you learn from Irene. That's what I learned from my grandfather. I remember going, you know, working in the farm, going to different tobacco fields. If there was a five-minute break, it was a five-minute nap. <laughs> You just sit back and go to sleep. <laughs> he did learn early on that you go to you get up work go to work at uh, six in the morning. You come in to eat a hearty meal, then you lay down in the floor and take a nap before you go back to work. Well, Richard Herndon used to call them power naps. Yeah, mm -hmm. Gray worked in construction, and uh, Richard would go to the car and after lunch and sit in the, go to this pickup truck and yep. sit in the front seat and take a power nap and then come back and and it build sometimes a house. it was five or ten minutes. It was five or ten minutes, and he told me one day, he said, well, you know, the, the Thomas Edison trick. And I'm like, what's that? And he goes, he used to lay down with his pocket watch in his hand. And when he relaxed enough to drop the watch on the floor or just on whatever it was sitting on, it'd wake him up, and he'd get up, and he said, that's all you need. Never heard that. But that, that generation, though, they would take a nap any time they'd get a chance in the middle of the day. Well, it's another thing that, and Greg, I'll let you speak to this, but one thing that I always thought was the craziest thing in the world that I'd see – Back then, when I was younger, that generation, my grandfather, our grandfathers, um, you all's fathers, is they would put peanuts in Mountain Dews. Oh, <laughs> you know, yeah. Mountain Dew, as sweet as that Mountain Dew is, mellow yellow, whatever, they throw a sleeve of peanuts in it. And, and to be honest. If I mean, you do the calculation, it's a Gatorade and a protein shake at the same time. <laughs> right? So because they're adding, they're adding salt to the sugar, and you're getting, you're getting a little bit of— They're basically creating Gatorade and know it. <laughs> yeah. I didn't do the Mountain Dew, but I did Coke and Pepsi that day. Yeah. yeah. Is it the big old 16-ounce bottles of Mountain Dew, and you take that first swig so you could get that high fructose hit, and then you 
pour that sleeve of peanuts in there and swirl it around and salt it up a little bit, and the rest was Gatorade and boiled peanuts is what it tastes like then. <laughs> These young folks, well, he never heard of that before. No, no. You're going to have people all over the country now. <laughs> trying. <laughs> trying that it's out. A, it's a cheap way to do it. Get it FMS says it's good. Yeah. We didn't say Mentos and Pepsi. We said peanuts and Mountain Dew. That's, that's the, the bottle rocket thing. That blows up. So Definitely going down memory lane, learn a little bit more about you, Gray. And, and of course, uh, having our dads on is definitely a, a great experience. want to thank you guys for coming in today. Really, really appreciate it. Um, this will be something we certainly uh, remember for a long time. That'll do it for our Father's Day episode of the Movement Podcast. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you heard, please subscribe and share it with your friends and family. If you want to learn more about our system and take the next step in your movement journey, visit us at functionalmovement.com. Until next time, be sure to move well, move often. It's good. We're not ready to have the moms on the show yet. No. no. The moms on the show. Uh, yeah. Matter of fact, Lee and I don't even need to be here for that. Just light them up and we'll just, we'll cut out what we don't want shared. <laughs>